Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, again, good morning and welcome to the second hour of this Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio for this last day of 2020. I'm Paul Perot, and if this is the first time you've been listening to Mornings with Carmen, we definitely hope you stay with us. A little background about Carmen. She's the author of the book, Speak the Truth. And in it, she calls us as people of faith to reject the fear of engagement and live as God's ambassadors in a world desperately in need of hope and truth. And as ambassadors, we are to, and I like the way she says this, we are to represent Jesus and his kingdom values and goals to a world that desperately needs it. I know you may be saying, Paul, you're saying the word wrong. It's supposed to be represent. Well, yeah, but Carmen's trying to get a point across. We need to represent Jesus. And that brings up some critical questions. What does it mean to represent Jesus? How do we know we are representing him and working as ambassadors for his kingdom? Well, one of the key issues here is that we be discipled in the ways of the kingdom, and that's the job of the church. Jesus gave the apostles the Great Commission. You probably know the words well. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, discipling them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, who is discipling you and into what? The reality is we are all being discipled by something or someone. It's usually by whoever you pay most attention to, be it social media, CNN or Fox News, or people you hang around with the most. But who is discipling you in the ways of the kingdom of God? Well, back in October, Carmen talked with Pastor J.T. English about his new book, Deep Discipleship. And that conversation is next on this Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Maybe most importantly, the husband to Macy, the dad to Thomas and Bailey, the shepherd to people both um, online and in person. He pastors the Storyline Fellowship. Uh, You may recognize his name as uh, formerly a pastor at the Village Church. You certainly recognize him as an author um, to whom we have turned before. So JT English, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. This is actually English Hour. I didn't even know that, but Bill English was on in the first portion. So we're just going to call this the English Hour. Um, Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. I heard that, Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just really glad to be here. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to have you. So the church really, um, maybe the family is the first crucible of discipleship, but the church is certainly the place where people should be spiritually formed 
where deep discipleship should be happening. Um, that is, in many of our of our experiences, not the case. So talk about why you wrote Deep Discipleship, to whom it is written, and the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, that's exactly right. So a huge part of this project for me, and, and the reason I'm so passionate about it, is because it's part of my own story. So I grew up in Littleton, Colorado, in a fairly secular environment. I didn't know the Lord, didn't go to church very often, and the Lord saved me when I was about 20 years old uh, in college through a nonprofit ministry campus crusade. And then I was largely discipled outside the context of the local church. I finally went to my pastor and asked him, I said, hey, I I really would love to grow. I want to learn how to follow Jesus. I want to learn how to read my Bible. And his answer to me is an answer I'll never forget. He said, if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to go to seminary. And that blew my mind because the local church should be the place where we're learning to become better followers of Jesus. And so I spent the next uh, nine, 10 years or so pursuing different degrees. But the passion of seeing discipleship happen in the context of the local church never left me. In fact, it only grew. And so my last role at the Village Church was really what would it look like for us to create holistic and deep disciples in the context of the local church? How would we go about doing that and what would we do? And then that's still my passion now as I pastor here at Storyline Fellowship. Um, Okay, Storyline Fellowship does not have the word church um, and certainly not a denominational moniker um, in its, you know, sort of the way it's presenting itself to the world. Um, Talk about that just in the culture, the words we use and the way we present ourselves. Yeah, so there's probably two reasons for that. First, uh, here where I, where I pastor, church can be a really intimidating term. So fellowship was the term that they decided when they planted. Storyline's only six years old, so it's still a fairly new church. It is also a Baptist church, but that was something that, uh, again, in a secular context, making a distinction between Baptist and Presbyterian for people in Colorado is less important than making a distinction between somebody who's Christian or somebody who's secular. But maybe the most important part of our name is that term storyline. Uh, And this is also a big part of the book in Deep Discipleship and why I was so attracted to come here to Storyline. We really believe that everybody's living in a story, whether it's the story of progressivism or romanticism or perfectionism. But there's only one true story of the world, and that story is found in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we're not just called to know that story. But we're called to participate in that story. The story of the Bible isn't a story of a, diff- of a different world far off and long ago. It's the story of this world, that God is still redeeming and reconciling all things to himself through Jesus, and that we get to become participants in that story, especially in the context of the local church. So I am talking with J.T. English. Uh, he is a pastor. He's also the author of Deep Discipleship. Um, we are talking about uh, how really the local church, as the locus of uh, ha- bears the locus of responsibility, the primary responsibility for discipling the people of God in the faith. Now, JT, when we talk about um, doing that, when I would let's just imagine because I go to a, a church that also happens to be Baptist but doesn't have that word in its name. I go to a church called Grace Community, and sure. um, uh, and when uh, uh, so let's just imagine for a moment, I would like to see my church move in this direction, um, seems a little fishy for, um, you know, a sheep to pass such a book along to a shepherd. Talk about <laughs> right. that. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's funny. I get this question all the time, and it's funny. As a pastor, I get books all the time from people like, hey, pastor, you need to read this. So I understand that that situation well. I mean, I think the first thing that, that I would want you to do if you're passing along this book to your pastor is to also offer it alongside of encouragement, especially in this season of a pandemic and everybody having to pivot, uh, pivot their ministry model on a dime. Really, pastors are in deep need of encouragement, of just telling them, pastor, I see what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I'm encouraged by what you're doing. As you continue to move forward, I want to be a part of helping however I can. And this is a book that I've found helpful, and this is something that we might want to implement. I don't want to in any way suggest that deep discipleship is the silver bullet for discipleship in the context of the local church. Really what it is is it's a conversation starter. The whole book is structured around questions. How do we ask better questions for discipleship in the context of the local church? So, for example, one of them would be, what if local churches ask the question, what do disciples need? Instead of asking the question, what do disciples want? Too often we find ourselves on whiteboards thinking of our parishioners as consumers or as a as an audience to, to perform for, instead of as sheep that we are supposed to guide and care for and move along towards this journey towards greater growth in Jesus. And so it really is an opportunity for you to say, I would love to have a conversation with you about discipleship. Every chapter at the end has a list of questions to walk through, a to-do list. So it really is a practical book for people to read together. The book is Deep Discipleship. JT English is the author, and he and I will be right back. There's always a reason to always choose joy. All right, brother in Christ, pastor, author, husband, dad, JT English, author of Deep Discipleship. Um, JT, there is uh, there's a desire to go deep. Uh, I mean, I think that if you were just to ask the average Christian, you know, you want to go deeper in your discipleship, you want to have a deep right. uh, discipleship. Um, you know, everybody's going to say yes, but talk about the role of desire, uh, like deep desire to actually know God and yeah. to allow my life to be conformed to what God wants. Like, that is really essential as a starting point, um, the the motivating starting point to actually move in the direction of a deeper discipleship. That's exactly right. And that's really where I start the book. The, the whole premise of the book is built upon orienting a philosophy of ministry based upon who God is, and, and that is to desire Him. And so we, we talk about in the book that, that that ultimately knowing the triune God is where we're going, and it's also the fuel of how we get there. So this isn't just about how do I get involved in a better Bible study. It really is how do I enjoy fellowshipping with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a deeper way now. The, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is writing to Israel, and he's 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 warning them about coming exile, but he, he gives them a promise in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will one day cover the earth as water covers the sea. And deep disciples are those people who desire for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to cover them. And now, because we know that that's going to happen someday, but ultimately disciples are those who are wishing, I want that to start today. I want to know Jesus and I desire to be with Jesus so much then that I actually want it to also start now. You use the uh, word holistic. Yeah. Let's um let's unpack that. It's uh, notable to me that it sure does look like it shares a root with the word holy and holiness. Yeah, it certainly does. And holistic, ultimately, Jesus Jesus says something similar when he's talking to his disciples about about what it means to be a disciple. He calls us to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. 
But the reality is, is a lot of discipleship programs tend towards either intellectualism or emotionalism or tend towards maybe service and sacrifice and doing. And all of those things are important. We, we should be intellectual. We should take care of our emotions. We should serve others with our strength. However, Jesus isn't dichotomizing what it means to be a person. He's not saying you have four parts and figure out how to love God with everything. He's saying you are a whole person, and you're supposed to give yourself over to knowing Jesus with every single thing that you have. And so what I tried to do in the book is to show people how different ways, whether that be through knowing God with your mind or through knowing God with your sacrifice and service or through knowing God with your emotions and your embodied nature— that, that there's ways for us to love Jesus as whole people, not just as brains on a stick. Yeah, whole people knowing and in relationship with and loving a holy God. Like that That's is, exactly right. and so um, such a privilege to have experiences with God where, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but they're, they can be fleeting and, but having them in my life where I'm just like, I I saw I saw something I mm-hmm. I you know it was it, I've been there the well is deep um and we don't I don't I don't know about you but I mean I it's not as if um I live in the pinnacle of that experience all the time but I do live out of that experience all the time I mean I walk in the world as a person who has been in the presence and, That's exactly and right. So is that what we're talking about? We're not. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we're talking about here, you use the term well, which I think is a, is a perfect term. God is an inexhaustible well of perfection and beauty and grace and goodness and mercy. And, and you're right. We often don't experience all of that at the same time, always over the course of our life. There's seasons of dryness. There's seasons of doubt and difficulty and perhaps suffering. But what we're saying in deep discipleship is, is that as we continue to go back to this well, you're never going to exhaust it. That uh, even in the kingdom and in heaven, we're always going to be enjoying God more and more and more. And so it's not like we need to think of him as some kind of an exhaustible resource that if I spend too much time with him or I enjoy his presence too much (laughs) or I'm with him too often, that somehow it's going to grow stale because it won't. You're never going to learn something about God that isn't lovely. You're never going to be with God or be in his presence and find something unholy, but rather you're only going to be overwhelmed with the inexhaustible riches of his goodness. So uh, it occurs to me that in addition to having a big church, like, you know, God has entrusted you with the shepherding of a lot of people, but he first entrusted you with, you know, uh, the nearest neighbor you'll ever have, and that's Macy. And then, you know, the cultivation of two other hearts, uh, Thomas and Bailey. Talk with people about um, their, their home really being the first place where these things need to be happening. And if we're not in a context where um, where that shepherding is actively taking place, you know, how to be sure we're connected. I mean, we all need to be connected with a local congregation. Um, but for those who also are shepherding a household, this is essential. That's exactly right. And and one thing I want to push back on is, is this book isn't just about how to build better programs. It really goes back to your word, Carmen, desire. And that same desire before it happens in the local church needs to be present in individuals and then in families. 
I live a regular life. Uh, I, my family and I, we've had some suffering. You know, it's not like I go home and we do catechism all day long or something like that. My wife, a few years ago, was diagnosed with with what we saw thought was a very high high grade form of cancer called a sarcoma, mm-hmm. and it was the most challenging six months of our life. It ended up being something a little less dangerous, but still very painful. And a lot of these principles that we talked about in the book really emerge from that experience because. Like I said, my family and I live the same life that every person who's listening right now listens to. Our kids go to school. We care for each other. We have arguments. We, you know, it's, we're just regular people. But, but what I want to be at the very foundation of our family, whether we're having a very normal day, a hard day, a sad day, or a joyful day, is desiring the presence of God. And 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 so, uh, one way we talk about it sometimes in our family is is for like our kids, for example, I want to be putting kindling in their life so that if and when the Holy Spirit strikes a fire and a spark in one of their hearts, all of a sudden their their lives are aflame with a love for Jesus. So right now we're working through something with my little boy named Thomas called the New City Catechism. Mm-hmm. And the first question is, is what is our greatest hope in life and death? And the answer is we are not our own, but belong to God. And so my little five-year-old little boy is just learning that whether it's my life or my death, I belong to God. And that's something that he doesn't understand those words yet. He hasn't experienced that with the same depth that maybe my wife and I have. But as he learns those words and watches mom and dad live things like that out, my hope is that one day the Holy Spirit will spark a fire in his life and there's going to be kindling all over the place, whether it's Bible memory passages or whether it's watching dad and mom try to walk in holiness, that all of a sudden it's not just a little bit of a spark that could go out, but it will be a fire and a flame that that will burn brightly for Jesus. Wow. I just I love that. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for who you are um, and for what you do. It is Pastor Appreciation Month. We recognize that. We appreciate you. Um, as a pastor, I also appreciate how you are pastoring other pastors, um, because this is uh, this is an important part of the conversation as well. Um, we'll be lifting up you and your family and your congregation and your ministry. Thank you for joining us today. The book is Deep Discipleship. JT, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Well, again, thanks for listening to this Best of Mornings with Carmen for this last day of 2020. I'm Paul Perot, Carmen's producer, as she's been taking some time off this week. However, we do hope you join her tonight for a special live stream event where she and some guests will help you pray out the old year and look forward and hope to the new. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. You can find out more right now at MyFaithRadio.com. More of this special Best of Mornings with Carmen up next. Let's look back at 2020 one more time with Colin Hansen of the Gospel Coalition as he and Carmen reflect on the top theological news stories of the year. That's in about five minutes. Thanks again for listening to Mornings with Carmen on this New Year's Eve day on Faith Radio. When tragedy strikes, whether personal, national, or global, people wonder how God could allow such things to happen. Is God really in control? Can we trust Him to run the universe if He would allow this? This is Max Lucado. It is important to recognize that God dwells in a different realm. God said to Isaiah, Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
How vital then that we pray armed with the knowledge that God is in heaven and he has chosen to bend near toward earth to see our sorrow and hear our prayers. Though we may not be able to see his purpose or his plan, the Lord of heaven is on his throne and in firm control of the universe and our lives. This is Max Locato. Colin Hansen. He serves as the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition, author of several books. Uh, he is a friend in ministry, and we love talking with him. So today we're highlighting a piece that is posted at thegospelcoalition.org. It's the top 10 theology stories of 2020. Colin, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, it's so glad to be back here, Carmen. Thank you. So um, I... Uh, I tried to start a debate in um, in the first hour about uh, the veracity of Scripture and whether or not uh, the canon is closed, because like you, I, I am longing for good old-fashioned theological debates. <laughs> Wouldn't that be better than the mask debates <laughs> or, the corona, or the vaccine debates that we're already in the middle of and that are going to ramp up? Yeah, when you look at all the chaos in the world, if you just go back and Let's just fight about the Trinity or something. Right, right. More, more interesting and perhaps edifying year than what we have uh, just experienced in 2020. So that's actually how you uh, how you lead off your piece. Um, I appreciated that. Let's talk. Let's just pause for a moment and talk about um, why unity among Christians does matter in terms of our public witness, um, because that seems to be really for me as an evangelical Christian. Um, the, the the driving headline over the last four years has actually been division uh, among Christians, and that's a sad headline uh, in terms of our public witness. Hey, you're right, Carmen. I hadn't really thought about it exactly in those terms, but I think you're right as we look back. One of the trends that stood out in 2020 is that while this is a theological story uh, list, I mean, talking about the top 10 theology stories of 2020, a lot of people who agree ostensibly about their theology disagree quite a bit about their politics, so they disagree quite a bit about sort of how the Christian faith ought to be applied in the world. And one of the trends of 2020 is that you might have been friends for decades, you might have been in the same church, you might have covenanted together in church leadership, you might have been able to sign onto the same confessional statement as perhaps even leaders in that church. But a disagreement over masks might have been enough for your relationship to end permanently, the side of heaven. That's what we saw in 2020. Now, you can multiply that to politics in general, to race relations, to uh, all kinds of different things, to vaccines. But you're right. That's one of the main trends that we've seen in 2020, those cultural and political divides among Christians who do agree theologically. All right, let's jump into the list. Um, and let me just say at the outset, Colin and I are acknowledging that uh, we are uh, living in the United States of America and that we're right. evangelical Christians, and we sort of recognize that that gives us um, uh, a particular perspective. We're not right. going to—we're um, not going to talk about international headlines related to groups of people like the Uyghurs um, or, right. uh, I mean, so anyway, so let's just acknowledge that at the outset. So um, going in reverse, 
uh, storyline number 10 in the top 10 theological stories of 2020? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, this, this is about the rise and, and sort of threat of social media. I don't know how many of your listeners right now have been trying desperately to log on to their Gmail or to YouTube. Oh, no, or I already talked but... about it because I use <laughs> Google Docs and I was paralyzed. I'm like, right. I cannot. My show notes are gone. But there, right. it's back it's... up. It's back up. I'm breathing yeah, easier. It's... Right, exactly. So that one of the developments of 2020 has been antitrust lawsuits that have been brought against Facebook and against Google. And a lot of the division that we were just talking about there, Carmen, is not some sort of abstract principle that is outside of anybody's control. In fact, it is a deliberate strategy that is employed by major uh, new media tech firms, these huge monopolies, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Uh, what happens is that the way they serve up information that confirms our biases and, and help to help us to hate other people or to distrust other people or to distrust any authority is itself a very significant theological story because it undermines our ability to trust any other Christians, to trust our pastors, because we saw something out there. And there was a Netflix documentary this year called The Social Dilemma that helped people, many, I think, for the first time to understand that this is a deliberate strategy run out of Silicon Valley and not some sort of accident. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, number nine is what story does fertility tell of faith? Um, tell us about that. Okay, so this is one of those things that, Carmen, you know, you're not supposed to talk about in polite company at church. You don't go up to somebody and say, so when are you planning to have kids? Or how many kids are you planning to have? You just don't, you just don't do that kind of thing. And yet one of the things that we're seeing across the board, across the world, especially in the West, is a significant decline in fertility. And I would imagine we could probably conclude that 2020, with all of us cooped in our houses with our families, probably is going to decrease fertility even more, especially economic uncertainty does that. Well, the way this connects to theology is that uh, Philip Jenkins, the eminent historian uh, out, of, out of Baylor University, has pointed out that historically speaking, fertility tends to go very hand in hand with the strength of religion. And so in those places that are seeing decreased fertility, you're going to see decreased religion if any of the historical factors hold, which means that theologically, we need to be looking to Africa because Africa's fertility far outstrips anywhere else in the world right now, which means likely they're going to be the future leaders in the church and setting the theological agenda for the rest of the world. All right, number eight on the list is thousands of readers discover Jesus to be gentle and lowly. Um, my conversation with Dane Ortland, you guys can go back and listen to as a podcast. Uh, we aired it on the 13th of November, so you can grab that at MyFaithRadio.com. When we come back, Colin Hansen and I are going to pick up on the list. Uh, we're counting down the top, top 10 theology stories of 2020. We'll be right back. My conversation with Colin Hansen, editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. He and I are working our way down the list of his top 10 theology stories of 2020. Um, number seven on the list, Ravi Zacharias comes under closer scrutiny after his death. Uh, number six, J.I. Packer dies at 93. 
funerals are for the living, and we learn a lot about ourselves and how we remember people. That's the uh, context there. And then, um, Colin, let's pick up with number five on the list. Supreme Court redefines sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Yeah, you picked up on this earlier, right, Carmen, with your little uh, story there about Tulsi Gabbard's legislation. So one of the main trends we saw this year specifically was Neil Gorsuch, one of President Trump's nominees, redefining the Civil Rights Act um, from decades and decades and decades ago on behalf of the 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court to say that when this amendment to the Constitution says um, that, uh, or when this legislation says that we're talking about sex, it also means sexual orientation or gender identity. As you said there, for athletics, for all kinds of different things, for basic understandings historically of sex and gender, this is completely revolutionary. Um, now, we don't really know exactly what all that's going to mean. I also point out that um, religious liberty continues to do very well at the courts. And so Neil Gorsuch, even as he's redefining this, does not then say that, for example, this means that anybody who teaches contrary to this is, is you know, able to be sued or somehow out of line. So we don't know exactly what the implications are going to be, but this is related to uh, pres uh, you know, President-elect Biden's choice for the, di uh, the director of Health and Human Services Department, who is very much on the side of now that the law has been officially recognized, therefore, if Christians don't get in line and teach this in their schools and in their ministries, then we're going to have to shut them down. And that's, that's potentially huge news theologically and for all of us. All right. For those of you listening, that gets back to that Javier Becerra conversation that we just right. had with Adam Carrington and last week with Matt Hawkins and Ben Johnson. So um, everybody that I'm talking with is highlighting that particular nomination. So obviously we need to be paying attention to it. All right. Number four on the story list, Jerry Falwell Jr. forced to resign as president of Liberty University. Number three, George Floyd's death sparks national wave of protests over racial injustice. No question, Colin, this is a really big theological story. Yeah, so now we're in the top three. And in the top three of my top 10, I think any given year, all three of these probably would have been number one. Mm -hmm. So, and they all three, as we talk about, they'll, they'll all relate to each other. And it's hard to know if any of them would have happened without the others. So we know about the long list of, of tragic deaths this year. Remains a whole lot of debate over exactly how those happened, or I should say why those happened especially, but we know the protests in and of themselves are significant and really incited a not only the, the violence we saw in our streets, but a lot of good and necessary conversations about racial injustice in the church with a theological tinge. Um, but then you've also now seen that morph into a broader conversation about the theology and the, and the coherence and the biblical resonance of topics like critical race theory, which are pretty you know, difficult to discuss, but then complicated to discuss. Most people are not well-versed in that. You saw President Trump come in and then ban critical race theory training from all federal uh, training programs, things like that. And so what started out this way as a, as a, a, you know, with George Floyd's death really morphed theologically into a controversy that engulfed, I mean, most of the Southern Baptist seminaries and really the whole SBC, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the country. President Donald Trump loses re-election. Um, that being number two on your list is is going to spark controversy among some who don't think that's been decided yet. But 
Um, I'm with you. Uh, that is a big <laughs> theological news story of the year. Well, you know, I always try to look, Carmen, for the theological angle behind the headlines, because I think we tend to assume these things. But what I noticed about President Trump is a very remarkable, and by remarkable, I mean that technically, I'm not trying to commend this or to disparage this, but a remarkable political and theological coalition. And you just saw that with the Jericho March over this weekend, the different kinds of group who, people who were brought together. Theologically speaking, we're talking here about dispensational fundamentalists. We're talking about post-millennial reconstructionists, prosperity gospel preachers, reformed Baptists, Southern revivalists. I mean, there were 74 million people uh, who voted for President Trump, and that was a very wide theological coalition, but it was not enough. And so we'll see what, that, what the consequences of that will be with the Biden administration. We've already alluded to that a little bit whether or not the left is ascendant and whether or not they'll seize upon uh, the levers of power to be able to bring a lot of theological pressure on churches and school. We'll see about that. But I think one thing I'm looking for is, does that theological coalition continue forward? Because mm -hmm. those people don't have a lot in common. So do they continue or not? We'll see. All right. And then number one, and again, we're recognizing that any of these top three could have been the number one story this year. COVID-19 kills more than one and a half million people and counting and upends the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, how could probably my 11 years of doing this, this is the biggest story. Uh, we're looking again at theological dimensions on this. I think about authority, Carmen. I think about Romans 13, 7, what that means in terms of our obedience to our government authorities. I think about 13, uh, Hebrews 13, 17, uh, what that means in terms of obedience to our church authorities. What does that actually mean? What does that entail? What does that cover? Those are the theological arguments we have. Now, also, as we think about church, what are we doing right now that's going to be permanent in terms of mm -hmm. video church, in terms of those assemblies? I think that's really up for grabs. We don't really know, but those are, those are theological questions that need to be answered about the nature of the church. They're not merely pragmatic arguments about what works. And so that theological debate will continue as long as this virus continues, and certainly, I think, uh, well beyond as we ease back into normal. Okay, so do you have a pen or a pencil handy, you know, or your typewriter? Yeah. Okay, yeah. here's Carmen's December <laughs> 2021 list. So a year from now, here's what I hope that, well, so here's what I anticipate some of the top 10 will be. The first one is really sad. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of community carnage across the country um, where churches close permanently and the good that those, um, that those communities of faith have been doing in those communities dries up. Um, I think the post-COVID realities of despair and funerals and suicides is, uh, I, I don't think we have any idea what this next year um, holds in terms of all of that. But... I have some good news headlines. <clears throat> I believe that there's going to be great success of the Abraham Accords uh, between Israel and her neighbors in the Middle East, and that that yields great gospel conversations. Um, I, am, I am praying that we will have a headline of the release of the Uyghur Muslims and the fall of communism in China. I mean, I'm thinking big, big headlines here. Um, and I think that conversation yields, you know, just such opportunities for evangelism. Um, I am praying that the Creed Collective and other church planting efforts here in America in some of our most neglected neighborhoods, absolutely just flourish and just have wonderful success. I think Joe Biden's version of Roman Catholicism um, in faith and practice 
provides all kinds of conversations for evangelism and and those of us who are evangelical Christians to speak into um, public life. I think Kamala Harris's version of Baptist theology and practice um, it does does the same thing, like lots of conversational opportunities there for evangelism. I think the religious freedom conversations related to SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity, at the at the national level with an Biden administration, I think those are real opportunities for Christians. And then here are my top top three. I believe we're going to hear testimonies of a restoration of the Word of God to its rightful place in the life of the church and the church's rightful place in the life of the culture. We're going to have news of the ongoing worldwide, worldwide revival, but also news of genuine revival here in the United States, accompanied by a new generation of Christians, captivated by Christ, sent by him into the world as agents of his grace. And then number one, um, if a year from now you and I are even talking about, if we're even here talking about a top theological list, then that's news that God granted us one more year for all of us to declare the gospel, that 2021 might be the year of the Lord's favor in the lives of millions of people who would come to know him. Like, right? Those are the headlines I want to read a year from now. Amen. I like that list. I wish we'd talked ahead of my list. I could have adjusted <laughs> some things to be able to make that work. But I, I love, your, I love your, your, your optimism, your global perspective, Carmen. I love also, I mean, even some of the pessimism is realistic that, to realize that we're not through the effects of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We know that because we're in the middle of the spread of the disease continuing. But I, I mean, it's a, I don't think we understand what it's even done to us at this point or to our churches. One of the things I've seen, Carmen, is that maybe between 25 and 30 percent of people have not engaged. These are regular churchgoers who have not engaged with their churches at all since March. Mm. That's, the, that's the data I've seen at least. If that's true, and I don't know if it is, we'll find out at some point. But if that's true, that would be, of course, the most devastating blow to religion in the United States in our history. Yeah. I mean, if you lose 25 to 30 percent of your people overnight, I mean, basically in a in a flash on March 15 or what? Yeah, March 15 is this last year. So we don't know what that's going to be. I'm actually working on a on a book that's called Rediscover Church. And the whole point is for churches to send this out to people so that they can be reminded of why the body of Christ is essential for them. I think you'll also love, Carmen, working on a, a book with Rebecca McLaughlin called The Secular Creed. You know, all those yard signs, love is yeah. love and thing. you know, she's writing a response, especially on the sexual dimensions of all those signs. Um, and like you said, conversation starters for people. Those signs, you might see them as a threat um, with your neighbors. Actually, it's an invitation to come on in and let's start talking about Jesus. Absolutely. Let's start talking about this stuff. So I love your positive response to these things of how we can turn these around into evangelistic uh, opportunities. I love that approach. All right, Colin Hansen, um, we are hoping that you're going to come back and talk with us on a regular basis. We love our conversations with you and what you're doing at the Gospel Coalition. Friends, you can find the article that we discussed today at thegospelcoalition.org. You're looking for the top 10 theology stories of 2020, or you're just looking for Colin Hansen. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back.
Well, again, thanks for listening to the special Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio on this last day of 2020. Remember, again, join Carmen online tonight for two hours starting at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern for a special live stream event where she and her guests will provide strength for today and bring you hope for 2021. It's a time of prayer and interaction on Faith Radio's YouTube and Facebook channels. To learn more, visit MyFaithRadio.com and get all the details. I'm Paul Perot. Hope you join us again tomorrow on New Year's Day for another Best of Mornings with Carmen. Among the conversations tomorrow, you'll hear from Chip Ingram as well as Bruce Ashford. Carmen will be back on Monday with a new Mornings with Carmen. And again, if you're still planning on doing any special end-of-year giving, remember, Mornings with Carmen and Faith Radio are listener-supported. So your special end-of-year tax-deductible gift helps bring Mornings with Carmen and all the great conversations to you in 2021. You can make that gift at MyFaithRadio.com or by calling this number now, 877-933-2484. Well, again, hope you join us tomorrow for Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul Perot. Have a blessed day and a happy new year. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.